Dave preach on chapter 18, um, I was, or the end of chapter 18, I was uh, in the uh, junction, no, preschool. So I did not hear it, it was not able to get recorded, so, um, but I'm going to give you an encapsulated version of chapter 18 just so you can kind of see where we're at. So here we go, very quick. We have the arrest of Jesus, we have Jesus before the high priest Caiaphas, we have Peter's denial of Jesus, um, we have Caiaphas' condemnation of Jesus and ultimately turning him over to Pilate, and then it culminates in Jesus explaining to Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. Okay, chapter 18, there we go. That's, that's it in a nutshell. All right, so... Again, the text we're dealing with today, though, these are very familiar to probably everybody. And again, what we have to do is get beneath the text to the faces in the crowd and the people that are taking part in this event. And let me also say this. This is a one-point sermon, which I'm not going to tell you what that point actually has a subpoint to. But I'm not going to tell you what that is until, until the end. So that's kind of going to be the mystery you have to watch out for. If that doesn't keep your attention, then nothing will. All right. So... In this section, the faces that we see are Christian, Jew, Gentile. And while the motives of these people being here are all different, we know what the end is, and it's very undeniable. We know what's coming. In these faces and in these character types, we can see ourselves in all different aspects of our walk, before being a Christian and after. Okay? If you were standing there, or if I'm standing there, whose side am I on? Where do you stand? Do you stand with the Gentiles and Pilate as innocent bystanders? Do you stand with the Jews who hate Jesus and the truth he stands for? Or do you stand with the Christians who are silent? In this text, there is not to, be a, to appear to be what we would consider a sold-out, radical follower of Christ to be seen. When times got tough, Christ is standing here alone. These people obviously didn't read one of the books that we have in the back called Radical by David Platt, which you guys can buy on your way out. And if you don't have money, Jay will pay for it. So, I'm taking six. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just kidding, just kidding. So where we pick up in chapter 19 is following the, the situations of chapter 18 that I spoke about. The Jews now knew, basically, that Pilate was putty in their hands. So as we pick it up here in, uh, in verse 1 in your Bibles, this is what it says, and I'm, I'm reading from the ESV, so the wording may be a little bit different. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. So as we open up in verse 1, we see Pilate having Jesus flogged. And he's probably hoping that by doing this, uh, Jesus would say something that, picky, that could be used against him. Or perhaps Pilate was hoping that by doing this, it would satisfy the crowd and avoid what is ultimately coming, which is the crowd pushing for the crucifixion of Jesus. Flogging or scourging, as it is called, was a very horrible thing to have happen. Um, the victim was, was fastened to a post. A soldier would take a whip with all kinds of thongs, like a cat of nine, into which they would weave pieces of metal or bone. He would then bring the whip down with all the force of his arm across the victim's back. The first blow typically would knock all the breath out of the body. The second opened up the skin. And as the brutality proceeded, flesh was ripped from bone. Sometimes vital organs were exposed. People were known to die beneath the scourge. Those who did survive were typically scarred for life. This was a horrible punishment, a horrible thing. Some of these these people were considered to be almost like artists with the way they could handle the whip and rip skin off people without actually killing them. And even though in chapter 1838, we see that Pilate believes Jesus is innocent, we still see him handing him over to this treatment. Treatment reserved really for the worst criminals and the worst types of people in their society. 
Jesus surviving this says a lot about his physique, says a lot about him. Jesus did not give any words that could be used against his innocent verdict from Pilate. In fact, there are no recorded words of Jesus at all during this. Although I'm sure there were just the screams from the pain and what he endured underneath that whip. In verse 2 and 3 it says, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. We now see him in the back in the hands of the soldiers where they begin to mock him. And maybe they're hoping that by their mocking they would provoke him into some angry remark or some type of curse against Rome. Or maybe they were just frustrated they were getting no response from him in the face of all this torture and in the face of this beating. See, we read here that the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. To these soldiers, there's something very comical that appears to them about Jesus being a king especially the king of the Jews. Romans had little love, if any, for the Jews at all. That this perceived weak man was their king just added to the mockery. We think about the thorns put on his head, the sharpness, the length, the hardness of them, and then having them twisted together into a crown and pushed down on his head. You know, I can't imagine that kind of pain and what he was feeling as he went through that. We can... Picture Jesus standing there with the crown of thorns, the scarring, bleeding, the swollenness from the flogging. But that wasn't enough. One of the soldiers grabbed a robe and put it on him. Now he looked more like a real king, which added to their mocking. We can imagine the laughter, the foul language, the taunting. But he took it all in. Getting no response from Christ only made them angrier. So they resort back to violence and hitting him. There we saw in verse 3, it says they struck him with their hands. Christ still stood there and took this persecution that was so bad, the prophet Isaiah proclaimed in Isaiah 52.14 that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, which means, in other words, he was unrecognizable. I don't know about you. Um, My dad's a doctor and I'm not, so I don't like blood. I've never watched uh, Passion of the Christ. It's confession. Okay. <clears throat> because I can't stand looking at, at stuff like that. I just, it's just not, not part, of my, part of my makeup. And this section and others I've actually written at length about for different, different uh, things. And I've gotten, unfortunately, very deep in understanding it. And I'm just kind of covering the surface today. But I, I can't imagine. And it just, in, in my soul and in, in my own body just what he stood there and went through and it just even now it just gives me the chills just just thinking about what he took there knowing that he could you know call down a, a legion of angels if he chose to but he didn't he just took it all in in verses four and five It says, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So we see Jesus being handed back over to Pilate. And I have to wonder what Pilate thought when he saw Jesus this way. Or maybe he was used to seeing people this way. You know, I I don't know. Nonetheless, he brings Jesus out in front of the crowds. 
in his current condition, the fact that he can walk is, is somewhat amazing in and of itself. And Pilate says again that he finds no guilt in him. By bringing Jesus out, maybe he's hoping that by seeing him this way, the Jews would back down and, and have some sympathy or some kindness. Maybe show some, some type of restraint against what they're pushing on Jesus, who Pilate is continuing to find and say over and over and over again, he is innocent. But at this point, it is clear they're only interested in a speedy trial and death. Seeing Jesus in the crown and robe only seemed to make them angrier. And here we see, we get this view of sin exploding in all its ugliness against the beauty of our Savior and the beauty of His holiness and how against sin, His presence makes it rise up against Him. It does no different for us. When truth rises up that we don't like, it makes us mad. When it cuts against us, doing what we want to do on a daily basis. When the truth of God's Word comes up against us, when areas we don't want to change, it makes us mad. That's what's going on here. The truth facing the crowd, they hated it. In verses 6 and 8, he says, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. So then we have the cries from the crowd, Crucify him! Crucify him! But Pilate just found out there was no middle ground where Christ is concerned. We are either yelling crucify him in our own lives or we're yelling crown him. We are either for Christ or against him. Dave preached uh, not too long ago, you're either all in or you're not. There's no middle ground here. And Pilate is wanting to play the middle ground. He's the politician. He wants to be the guy in the middle. Hey, this isn't on me. This is on you guys. You guys take him. And Pilate here we see in verse 6 again, saying Christ is innocent. It says you take him. He's hoping to shift that responsibility from his shoulders back to theirs. But nobody can do that. When it comes to Jesus, each of us makes his own decision and is responsible for his own reaction in what we do with what we know about Christ. In verses 7 through 9, the Jews begin to manipulate and instill fear into Pilate. The Jews appeal to their law, found in 24.16, about blasphemy, but it's fraudulent. And it's fraudulent because when it comes to Jesus, each of us, sorry, um, it's fraudulent because Jesus is the Son of God. This is not blasphemy, this is the truth. This is the truth that they're rejecting. But Pilate had no concern for Jewish or religious laws. He couldn't have cared less. So verse 9, we see it says, He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate, being fearful, being a little bit nervous, trying to, trying to get a grip here on what's going on and trying to understand what he was dealing with, he goes back to question Christ. And Jesus gives silence as his answer to Pilate's questions. Why? Well, what would Pilate do with the truth? We see what he is doing with it now, knowing that Christ is innocent. Let him act on that truth. Instead, it is as though he is hoping Jesus can give him some words or explanation that gets him off the hook from having to deal with this at all. And remember the culture that Pilate is living in. Jesus trying to explain his incarnate deity 
would have been uh, colored by Pilate's pagan beliefs and concepts of uh, Mount Olympus and Roman idolatry. And he would have been, so you're, you're like Zeus then. Well, well, no. Well, so you're like him or her. And it'd be like, well, no. But Pilate has no interest in truth. In verses 10 and 11, it says, So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So in verse 10, Pilate makes a statement that is beyond his understanding of truth. And this statement does get a response from Jesus. As Jesus looks to correct Pilate's theology here, Jesus says in verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Verse 11 here is the linchpin verse of this section of Scripture that everything else hangs on. And I'm going to get to that a little bit later. But throughout the Bible, the fact is established that human government is God-ordained and that those in positions of authority, whether they recognize it or not, are ultimately responsible to God for the way that they conduct themselves. In Proverbs 8.15, it says, and this is God speaking, it says, By me, kings reign. And in Romans 13.1, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And if you continue to read verses 1 through 7 in, in Romans 13 there, which I would encourage you to do, it talks a lot about government, our responsibility underneath it. Pilate's authority was derived from Caesar. But really... Pilate and Caesar's authority were derived from God. Jesus makes clear that what is happening here is sin. And he does not mitigate Pilate's sin. It is a a kind of a remarkable instance of the Lord's honesty that he is talking to his so-called judge here, Pilate, about his personal sin. You see, there, there is no innocent bystander. Pilate is still a sinner. Jesus makes, Jesus' reference to the person with the greater sin is believed by most to be Caiaphas, because he's the one that turned him over. Back in uh, Romans, uh, I'm sorry, back in uh, 1828, Pilate turned over Christ to the, to the Roman guard, or sorry, Caiaphas turned over Jesus to Pilate and the Roman guard. There we go. But there's sin all around. There's no innocent bystanders. In verse 12, it says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So we now see the Jews changing their tactics. They are now pressing a political charge instead of a religious one. They have figured out how to motivate Pilate to do what they want. Pilate knew that for anybody to claim a kingship, Caesar would expect quick, final, deadly judgment. Pilate was far more afraid of Caesar than he was of Jesus or the Jews more concerned with being Caesar's friend than with being just and doing the right thing. Judas sold Christ for money. Caiaphas sold him out of religious prejudice. Pilate sold him out in order to hang on to his job. But people today, we sell out Christ for material gain, wrong religion, godless friendship, handful of money, or round of applause. In all these years, Christ still divides us, and we still divide Christ. Not much has changed. We've just gotten better at it. In verse 13, it says, So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. 
So verse 13, we enter the climax of the trial. Everything has been leading up to this point. The time has come for Pilate to make up his mind once and for all, one way or another. And accordingly, he seated himself on the judgment seat. This was a raised platform with a seat in the open court of the praetorium. And this court sits in stark contrast to the day when Jesus is seated on his own judgment seat that we read about in 2 Corinthians 5.10. In 2 Corinthians 5.10 it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So I'm sure in Christ's mind he's, he's maybe thinking of this contrast or, or thinking of this continued mockery of him and his kingship and who he is as he's being judged by somebody who has no real right to judge him but is allowed to do so. Knowing what's going to be coming down the road when he sits in judgment. Verses 14 and 15, it says, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. The Jews now reject Jesus formally and fatally as the son of David, rightful heir to the throne of Israel, mighty lion of the tribe of Judah. Away with him! Away with him! Be done with him. And John gives us some great detail of time and place, especially not wanting us to miss that it is the day for the preparation of the Passover, which is when the Jews typically killed the Passover lamb. Today was no different, although in this case it was probably unbeknownst to them the depth. And here we have Jesus. And his face beaten, he's standing. His head crowned with thorns, his bleeding back covered by a purple robe. He'd been up all night. He had agonized in the garden. He had been marched here, there, and everywhere. He had to be exhausted and racked with pain. Pilate, checking the crowd for a reprieve that should have come from him, now asks the Jews, shall I crucify your king? Maybe he's hoping that the Jews are going to relent. But if that was his hope, he was quickly disillusioned. The answer he had received from the crowd may have even surprised him. Because it was the chief priests that we see who answered. We have no king but Caesar. To hear them say that must have been an all-time first. Let me tell you. Because you got the chief priests saying it. Not the crowd, not the rabbis, but the nation's rulers, the official custodians of the Jewish faith. That's who's saying this. We have no king but Caesar. They're saying they would rather have Roman rule than the rule of Christ. They would rather have Caesar as king than Jesus. It was a terrible abandonment of the faith by which the nation had lived. This was the formal rejection of the Jewish nation's messianic hope that continues to this day. See, they hated Caesar. They hated the Romans. And in the 60 years following this, and then the 40 years after that, in the next 100 years, there would be some bloody battles against the Jews and the Romans. They hated them. But they hated Jesus more. So that's what we see taking place here. But before we move on, we have to go back to verse 11. Okay, take a look at verse 11 with me. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. If you remember, I called it the linchpin 
verse of the section of Scripture. You see, on the surface of what we see going on is a mob out of control. We see a situation careening into a hopeless scenario. And verse 11, though, tells it like it really is. God is in control. Nothing happening here is outside of God's sovereign control and will. When I listed off the character types in the beginning of the sermon, the one that was missing, the one I left out and was there, was God. Christ was not actually standing alone as I had said. God is there. God is present. Verse 11 tells us, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Who has authority over us as Christians? Nobody unless it is given to them from above. But we know that God is in control. Okay, here's the sermon point. And then I'm going to unpack it, okay? Trust the God of our salvation. That's the sermon point. One point. Trust the God of our salvation. If you trust Him for salvation, and you trust Him for your hope of heaven... You should be able to trust Him for every other aspect of your life. And by you, I mean me. Subpoint: the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. You see, what's going on here is God's providence taking place for our redemption in what appears to be, to the disciples, the end of the line and the end of all their hopes, all their dreams, whatever they have hoped Christ was going to be for them, they, they think it's just being thrown away, dashed away because they don't see everything going on. And look at this. We, we haven't seen or heard from the disciples since Peter's denial in chapter 18. That's a great way to hear the last things from the disciples, right? Last word from the disciples. I don't know him. Where are they? In the crowd? Maybe. If they were, they were certainly silent. Sometimes what we don't see is as powerful as what we do see. In this tumultuous, out-of-control uprising, everything was under control from God's view. It was under God's control. He is as present here as He is in the midst of our own personal turmoil and suffering where we think everything is out of control. God allows what appears to be out-of-control situations to come at us just like this situation came at the disciples. And in those moments of stress and concern, who do we look to? In these moments, do I believe that God has a plan for my life? Do I believe that all things happen for a reason? Do I believe that God is truly in control? Or does my faith scatter like the disciples did? Is what's happening to me luck? Or is God still at work even when I don't understand what's going on? See, I don't believe in luck. I believe God does have a plan. And I believe I need to know what it is because I'm a control freak like all of you. And if I don't see it or understand it, then I freak because I'm human. And then I beg for mercy because I'm a Christian. In 2009, those questions I just listed off, I had to face them personally head on. 2009 was a very difficult year for me and my family. Um... It's always great when you start a job, when you work with a company, everybody wants to you know, move up the ladder and all that. <clears throat> and God has blessed me with, with being able to do that. But when 2009 hit and the economy went to, out the window, um, the downside of being in executive leadership means when pay cuts come, guess who gets the biggest pay cuts? Those in executive leadership. So my salary for all of 2009 was cut about 38, 39%. 
um, which is very difficult. As most of you all know, you know, I have five kids to feed and everything else. So it's very difficult to think, wow, what am I going to do? Um, you know, blowing through savings didn't take long. Blowing through everything we thought was our uh, safety blanket, right? That uh, didn't take long. Um, and then it was just a matter of what are we going to do? And, of course, I'm trying to control the situation as much as I can because, like I said, I'm a control freak. And I want to help God <laughs> because I'm a nice guy. But God, in his ultimate providence, didn't want my help and decided he was going to do things on his own. Um, we're struggling with, you know, with how we're going to make ends meet, what are we going to do in, in all this going on. Um, and then one day Dave calls. And he says, uh, you know, he says, hey, how's it going? And I don't remember why you called exactly, and it doesn't really matter necessarily. Um, but I told him what was going on. I said, well, and we'd already been into this uh, a few months. <clears throat> I said, well, I said, I'll be honest with you. You know, things are tough. Things are tough, and I'm not sure what's, what's going to happen. We're probably going to lose our house. We're going to, I don't know what to do. And in, and in my mind, you know, when I start to think about things or get anxious about things, 20 minutes later, I've got me and my family sitting on the curb in my mind, you know, with, a, with cups out or, or whatever. Um, and that's, you know, again, that, that's human nature. And so I, I tell Dave what, what's going on. And we've been praying that, you know, God would do something and, and how would he help us get through this. And I was uh, looking for work with other opportunities within my organization and kind of flying around knowing that uh, I would have to move to another state again uh, if something came together there. And so there's all these things going on. And I explained to Dave what's going on. And Dave says, well, you know, let me see if we can help you. And the, uh, and the church was the extension of God's grace to us that helped us through there. Through the, uh, the uh, Koinonia offering. Uh, the church came through for us in a big way. Not just the, the prayers of Gail and the prayer team, which we were immensely grateful for, but the money that kept us in our home, kept food on the table. It was God's grace being extended to us the way it should be through his church and through his people. And it was a humbling, still humbling, wonderful experience that God was absolutely 100% in control of. And he was showing me in that, that he is in control, not me. I want to be in control. I fought for control. But he did not want to give me control. He said, no, you need to learn I am in control. This is about me, not about you. You are going to be at a point where nobody can help you but me. And that's what he did. My parents... We're very wealthy until my dad lost his job. He, they ended up losing their home and everything they had. He didn't find work for two years. They couldn't help. My grandparents were helping support other members of our family. They couldn't help. God put us in a spot where he was the only one that could come through for us. That was the first time in my life ever being in a spot like that. But the beauty of it was on the other side, when I look back and see what he was doing, I see what he was doing. He was showing me that he was in control and that everything, no matter what it appears to be or what it looks like, good, bad, or indifferent, I mean, my credit is shot, but I don't care. So what? That's the least of my worries. 
So how do I thank God? You have a sixth kid. Because <laughs> he's going to provide. I don't worry about it. Join the EPT Frequent Buyer Program, of which I think we're the only members. <laughs> but we have to get to a point where we just give up control and give in to God and just say, okay, God, you are in control. I don't need to know why. I don't need to know how. I don't need to know what you're doing here. I trust you. And whatever it is that you are working and doing. And I remember sitting on the edge of my bed, just just anxious and, and burdened with fear and concern about what is going to happen to us. And, and I just, just prayed through tears that, God, it's just yours. It's it, whatever. Do what you want to do. And what is so sad about that for me is, and I told Dave this at one point, I said, I remember in my, in my 20s, you know, I mean, I had some radical prayers for God. It was challenge me, change me, cut me, prune me. I don't care. Do what you will with me. I am yours. But as I started to have more kids, as I started to rise in my company, as we started to have more bills, my prayers have not been that radical anymore. My prayers were pretty ordinary because I was afraid. What if God took me at my question? What if God took my challenge? What if he did decide to bring adversity or challenge into my life? You know, and then I think, well, you know, me and Dana, we can do anything. But it's the kids. And God was showing me, your safety net isn't here. Your, your security isn't, isn't in the buildings and your house and your 401k and your bank accounts and in any of this. It's not in your job. He was showing me that it's in him. And when I prayed that and, and really felt like I gave it all to him, in that moment, I remember feeling just, just an amazing freedom from the burden of worry and anxiety. I just remember it feeling lifted and just feeling so good, recognizing what I was still holding back from him in my heart. The Bible gives us some amazing examples of faith in the midst of what appears to be out-of-control circumstances. From Job to Joseph to Ruth to Moses to Daniel to David and on and on, they all faced incredibly difficult situations while trying to serve God. Some questioned God. I could have gone out and said, you know, God, I've served you for all these years. I've, done, I've, I've taken the gospel. I've done all these things for you. How can you do this to me? How can you let these things happen to me? But I know better than that. See, what they all came to realize, Moses, Ruth, David, Daniel, me, and what we hopefully come to realize through our own trials is that God is there and active. I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they had such a radical faith. It was so different than what you see in a lot of people. In the midst of being put to death for not bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, this is what they said, and and I'm just going to paraphrase this. They said this. They said, God may not save us from the furnace, but it's not because he can't. And even if he does, we will still not bow down. They're telling Nebuchadnezzar, God may not save us, but it's not because he can't. And in our trials, God may not rescue us or help us in the way that we want or the way that we desire or in what we think or in any way that we understand or can look back and even see. But it's not because he can't. That's, that's that, that faith that I just want to be gripped by and driven by and motivated by that they had 
And during this time, I remember reading through this and just thinking, man, I really want to get to this place like they were. Because when did God show up for them? In the furnace. When did God show up for David? In the lion's den. When Joseph, all those years in prisons, all the turmoil, you think he knew what was going on? He's probably going, what the heck is going on? But God was there. Does that guarantee, like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that he'll show up and rescue us from tragic, life-threatening, or life-altering circumstances? No. Or at least maybe not in the way that we want. So we have to, again, get to where these guys were in their faith and understanding of God. We have to really grasp and know that if something's changed, it's not because God can't change them. And there must be a purpose in it that I can't see or understand. And that is why the Bible says multiple times, it starts in, in Habakkuk 2.4, and then Paul repeats it in Romans, Galatians, and Corinthians. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. It is the type of faith that propels us into radical living for Christ. See, when I was a kid, a lot of you have heard my testimony, and I'm just going to touch it for just a second. I grew up in a house that uh, everybody went to church and nobody was saved. My father was a highly physically abusive alcoholic um, that beat us fairly regularly and extensively. And I was the first to get saved when I was nine years old. And I remember being seven, eight, nine, and most people don't remember that, but I do. remember praying and asking God that he would kill my dad and he would take him away or take him out of my life or, or do things. And, and things didn't change until I was in the, in the sixth grade. And I could look at that situation and I could use it as an excuse for every other part of my life to be a failure to do something other than, than follow God or cling to God. But when I look back, that was a spiritual marker that God used to propel me into ministry and to propel me into dealing with youth. He got glory out of that. It was a horrible situation. I wouldn't wish on anybody, much less myself. But God used it. He took what was ugly. He took what was sinful. He took what was outside of my control and he used it for his glory and for his goodness. And he used it in me to work a motivation and to put a burden on my heart for children and youth. We have to write Romans 8.28 on the tablet of our heart. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then one of my favorite sections of scriptures is Romans 8.31-37. through 37. It says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whew. Man, that feels good. You see, this is what is happening as we look back to the scene with Christ and Pilate. It's all under control. As horrible as the situation is, 
It is motivated by a love that will redeem us and bring us to God through Christ. This event actually started with sin in the Garden of Eden and finishes with sin and the wrongful prosecution and death of our righteous Lord on the cross leading to our redemption. You know, if you ever get a chance, you should read the book of Habakkuk. It's a great study in, in how God, in God's providence and how he seems. Habakkuk saying, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing anything? What, what, what's going on? And God says, oh, I'm doing something. I'm raising up your enemies to take you down. What? On second thought, don't answer me. Habakkuk's situation doesn't really improve, and God does exactly what he says he's going to do. But I love what Habakkuk says at the end of Habakkuk in his prayer to the Lord. This is what he says. Habakkuk, in the in this situation and in the circumstance, got to where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, even though his situation really had only gotten worse. He said this. He said, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. In your troubles, in your circumstances, in your trials, think about these words. Where is your strength? Is it in you? Is it in your circumstances? Or is it in Christ? Whatever trial you're in, the ending may not be what you want or what you expect. Just remember in all of this, you are loved. You are loved by Christ. You are loved by God. You are loved by this church body. And take solace in these scriptures and those that came before us. Christ took this beating and took this shame to give you a hope and show you a love that goes beyond understanding in all circumstances. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is such a weighty piece of Scripture. And Father, I am just so grateful that Your Word is true. Father, I am so grateful that no matter what goes on in our lives, that You are active, You are present, You are at work. And Father, the Lord went down this path, went down this road to bring You glory, to bring You honor. May we not shirk away from what you're putting in front of us, Father, to bring you glory and honor in our lives. May we be willing to pray radical things and be willing to have our circumstances changed in order to honor you and live more faithful lives. Father, I pray that would be the cry of our hearts. And in all this, Father, we give all glory, honor, and praise to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Thank you.